Well, the first thing I'd like to say is, why did I pick this chapter? I, I didn't do it. I did it intentionally, but not intentionally. Uh, I thought, I'm a, one of those believers in 1 Corinthians 14, 40, let all things be done decently and in order. So I thought, we were going to go chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. And I said, the first available Sunday I could do was the third Sunday. So I thought it would be this one. Then I thought, wow, I bit off a little more than I could chew. But uh, thankfully, Mark Dever keeps it in nice and plain and simple and outline form, so to speak. The guys that have done this will know what I'm talking about. But right after I picked that and I said, okay, I'm locked in for uh, biblical understanding of conversion and evangelism, Two different incidents happened to me that I can testify. One, uh, you know that we've kept a granddaughter for several months, and uh, we had gone to some friend's house for dinner with her, and they have a, a godly teenage daughter who they went out walking afterwards, and she confronted our granddaughter about uh, salvation and said, uh, would you know what, what would happen if you died today? He says, yeah, I'd go to hell. And we didn't know about this when it was happening, by the way. And she said, really? You know, that's forever. And she, she, her reply was, well, why wouldn't you want to? And she says, because I'm mad at God. And, I, and then her mother later texted us and told us about this. And we were, I thought, oh, that, that hurt. Then the second incident was a co-worker. I'd, some of you may know that I worked for a while part-time at, at an Ace Hardware community lumber in Lexington. And just about all of the, all the, the guys that work out at the yard are unsaved. I mean, without question. And one day I got into conversation with one of the guys and we were talking about heaven and hell. He says, well, I know where I'm going. I said, well, where's that? And he said, hell. I says, really? And another guy was listening to us, and, we, and he and I had a conversation after that. And he said, yeah, I know. I've, I've got a special place there. And I said, I said, Garrett, that is forever. There is no turning back. This was all after I had picked this chapter. So I want you to get the idea. But all the thoughts that I'm going to express today are not mine at all. They're all Mark Devers, uh, in the chapter 3. But I agree with them, and I will quote a lot. Basically, everything I say today is Mark Devers' words. So, so I don't get accused of plagiarism or anything like that. I just want to be upfront with you, that sort of thing. So, Father, we thank you for the opportunity to express these, the most important decision that anyone in the face of this earth can ever make, and that is to repent of our sin completely and change our lives and receive the Lord Jesus Christ into our lives. And Lord, as the thoughts are expressed and uh, amplified here a little bit, I pray, Lord, that uh, we will submit ourselves, Lord, to the leading of the Holy Spirit as we speak. We pray in Christ's precious name with thanksgiving. Amen. Okay, as, as uh, Pastor Adam said, Two different things, conversion, we'll start with that, and then move on to the biblical uh, understanding of evangelism, and they're interrelated. 
But conversion is literally turning from sinning to repenting of our sins and turning from trusting in ourselves only in Christ to reconcile us to God. Acts 20.21, if you're taking notes and you want to get all these references, look them up a little later. Uh, Testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if we think conversion is something that we alone do, then we will evangelize one way. If we think conversion is something that most fundamentally God does, then we will evangelize another way. And how we evangelize will determine, in no small part, our church's health, and as surely as what food you're buying in the store affects your physical body's fitness, anemic evangelism will starve us, and we will waste away. Careless evangelism will stuff us with false converts, and our church will become sick, unsound, and dysfunctional, and perhaps it'll even die. But a biblical understanding conversion will encourage us to a biblical practice of evangelism. A biblical understanding of conversion is a mark of a healthy church. Okay, this basic question of whether conversion is often necessary, is even necessary, is increasingly an obstacle when it comes to biblical Christianity. A lot of what passes for religion today is simply an affirmation of ourselves, leading many to choose complacency about our human condition over biblical change. When confronted with the idea that they might need some great alteration in their life, they simply say, why do I change? What for? You shouldn't impose your ideas on others. You know. Besides, you're surely not suggesting that your way of living, your way of looking at the world, is any better than mine. If you are suggesting that you must be some kind of self-righteous hypocrite, I'll kindly thank you to manage your own neuroses and leave me to mine. But the Bible clearly teaches that change is needed, that we are not just fine. In fact, the Bible teaches that we're in trouble. Consistency in our dead spiritual state simply will not help us. We have to remind ourselves of Jesus' understanding of the natural state of people in this world. John 3 uh, verses, 20, verses 19 and 20 says, The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than light, because their works were evil. For everyone who knows, does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. You know, notice that a lot of crime happens at night, in the dark. I have a classic example of that that happened to us on this trip. When we got back to the airport got home, and Lorraine went to start the car up. It sounded like I had a hot rod. I ducked down underneath, told her to turn it off, ducked underneath, and the catalytic converter was gone. But it had happened during the night. And I thought, okay, here's a practical example what men love darkness rather than evil, than light because their deeds are evil. So I thought, okay, Forward and on, forward, let's go. Well, Paul reminded the Ephesian Christians that before they were converted, they were dead in their sins and transgressions. Paul taught clearly that this spiritual death is shared by all humanity. If you have any doubt as to whether conversion is important to the Bible, read Romans 2 and 3. The truth is that we all have sinned against God. Paul quotes the Old Testament in a sweeping 
denunciation of any claim that we might make to being righteous of ourselves. None is righteous. No, not one. Romans 3.10. The Bible teaches that we are totally depraved, not in the sense that we are as bad as we can be, but the sense that every part of our being has been touched by rebellion against God. All aspects of ourselves are marked by the sin, the spiritual death. Even our tongues are used to deceive, Romans 3.13. And then Paul concludes that by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. And that's Romans 3.20. So any church, any church that is not clear on this is not serving you well. And it's sad to say that there's a lot of churches in this country today that are in that position. The Bible gives us radical images to show us the state of our human nature. It says that we are in debt, enslaved, bankrupt, and even dead. This is our condition. We are in a disastrous situation. Clearly, a change is needed, a change that only Jesus can bring. Consider these two truths. We are in desperate need of God's grace, yet God owes his grace to nobody, to no one. That's the very nature of grace. It is not something owed. What God owes us is justice for our sins, and that justice is what Jesus has taken as a substitute for all who believe with the finished finished work at the cross. So when Jesus calls us through his spirit, we turn from our sins to faith in him. And then when God's spirit begins powerfully to call us to turn from our sins, we experience a great sense of conviction. A conviction. We begin to sense something of the seriousness of sin, particularly the seriousness of the deadly character as an act of revolt against God himself. We no longer feel like, I shouldn't have done that, or my conscience is bothered by that. Another one I might add to what he said in, in his book is, oh, I got caught at that. And then, then we get overwhelmed with our conscience and so on and so forth. Rather, we begin to see what our sins reveal about our lack of trust in God our lack of prioritizing what God prioritizes, and our lack of caring about what God cares about. We begin to see the ugly nature of sin. We begin to feel like the adulterer David who prayed against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, you could have, David could have easily said what, what Adam said to Eve in the garden. The woman, she made me do it. Adam could have said, that woman, she just tempted me. But he said, no, against you, you only, God, have I sinned. According to the Bible, this is a crucial part of the good news. We need to be converted. Our state of nature is not good. The change we need is is not merely to discover ourselves and possibilities, but to turn. You don't need a better you You need a new you. And that is what God provides for us in Jesus Christ. In conversion, we resign our claim to be the final judges and governors of our lives, our own lives, and we acknowledge that the role belongs to God alone. Our past sins need to be forgiven. Our present lives need to be reorientated. Our future destiny needs to be changed from the hell of God's good judgment to the heaven of God's gracious forgiveness and acceptance of us in Christ. Perhaps every other religion on the planet preaches self-salvation, but Christianity does not. 
Christianity preaches that we need to be radically changed. True conversion is a change of mind. It is not just a change. I mean, is a true conversion is a change of mind, but it is not just a change of mind. It is a change of heart, though not a mindless emotional experience. As God converts the heart and gives new birth, new actions flow from our new identity as those who are united in Christ by faith. According to the Bible, the real change of Christian conversion involves relying on Christ alone. We are not simply to try to justify ourselves before God or improve our life a little bit here and a little bit there and think that somehow changes, those such changes will hide our sins from God or make our hearts appear righteous before Him. In true conversion, we begin to rest in Christ, to trust in Him, and rely on His merit alone before God. This great change is all about realizing that we can never go to church enough, we can never teach enough Sunday school classes, we can never give enough money, we can never be kind enough, or beautiful enough, or happy enough, or contented with our religious lives enough to merit God's goodwill toward us. Nothing. Right? Nothing. We must realize that because of our sin, we are truly desperate for God. before God. Our only hope comes in understanding that God has taken on flesh in Christ, that Christ lived a perfect life and died on the cross in the place of all those who would ever turn and trust in Him, and that He rose in victory over our sins and now offers to pour out His Holy Spirit into our hearts. Beginning to have this reliance upon God and trusting in Him alone is the nature of the great change that takes place in conversion. We must repent of our sins and trust in Christ, and we can do that only by the power of God's Spirit, who takes the words we read and hear and uses them to create life and faith in our previously dark and dead souls. We need God to give us life. We need God to give us new hearts. Scripture tells us that is exactly what God promised to do, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. That is from Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19. We find this throughout the Bible. This kind of heart transplanting is God's work. He alone can do it, and he must work this change in us if we are to accept the spiritual truths of the Bible. As Jesus said in John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Then point two is the biblical understanding of evangelism. What is evangelism? Well, as he said in his book, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the best ways to understand this is to think about some common ways evangelism is often misunderstood. He gave six different ways he listed here. Number one, evangelism is not an imposition of our beliefs on others. You must, you must understand that the things you believe in as a Christian are facts. They are not mere beliefs or opinions. Well, I believe this, I think that, and so on and so forth. These are facts are not yours in the sense that they uniquely pertain to you or your perspective or experience or in the sense that you made them up on your own. Yeah, there's a lot of religions in this world today. They make up their own religion, and, and then as it passes down from generation to generation, then it becomes 
the truth in their minds. In biblical, converse, in, in biblical evangelism, we don't impose anything. In fact, we really can't. According to God's word, evangelism is simply telling the good news. It doesn't include making sure that the other person responds to it correctly. Sure, we wish we could make people respond to the gospel. We can't. According to the Bible, the fruit of evangelism comes from God, not our plans, methods, or techniques. You know, you can witness the, just one of our own church missionaries, Jeremy Farmer. He's been how many years he's been on the field there? And he's, it's, just, it's just slow going. That's God's, that's God's job. The second point, misunderstanding, is evangelism is not simply a personal testimony. It can be part of, an event, of evangelism. The main core of evangelism has to be objective, indisputable, necessarily confrontational facts of the gospel. I could go on and talk about that subject a lot more, and he did, but the clock keeps moving. The third misunderstanding is evangelism is not the same thing as social action or political involvement. For example, people refer to partnering with God or redeeming our communities. But evangelism is not about redeeming society. It's about redeeming sinners. Redeemed sinners can play a role in redeeming societies in that direction. The fourth misunderstanding was that evangelism is not simply encouraging positive thinking or sharing Bible verses that appear to promise prosperity. If you follow Jesus, you can't be surprised when you end up where he did, taking up your cross and being accepted by God himself. Eternal health and wealth is what we should most, is, is what we should most care about, not temporal riches of this world. So think of eternity's values rather than earthly values. The fifth misunderstanding is evangelism is not the same as apologetics. Apologetics respond to the agenda others set. Evangelism follows the agenda that Christ has set, giving out news about him. Evangelism is a positive act of telling the good news about Jesus Christ and the way of salvation through him. And the sixth misunderstanding is that evangelism is not to be confused with the results of evangelism. Finally, one of the most common dangerous mistakes to confuse the results of evangelism with evangelism itself. This may be most subtle of the misunderstandings. Many Christians and churches focus on rapid growth, but rapid growth is not necessarily good growth or even real growth. In fact, rapid growth can be cancerous. I don't know about you, but many times I get into conversation with people. Oh, what church are you going to? And I say, well, how many people are going there? And it's like, are we, are we there for that reason? Uh, what numbers do you have? That sort of thing. And so that can, as Mark Dever called it, that can be cancerous. Well, then why should we evangelists? This is the second point. When you understand that evangelism isn't converting people, but that is it is telling them the wonderful truth about God, the great news about Jesus Christ, then obedience to the call of, to evangelism becomes certain and joyful. And I want to emphasize that word. I hope I do that several times. Understanding this increases evangelism because we stop viewing it as a burden and instead see it as a joyful privilege. 
Um, Christians love hearing the gospel. It builds us up and encourages us, and we love telling it. It is beautiful to be able to tell somebody else such good news, isn't it? Um, to, to, tell, to, to, to prove that Mark Dever, he lives by what he preaches. Uh, one of his books that I've read that he is, he tries to implement in every message, sermon, whatever you want to call it, some, play, some player the need for salvation, that need for repentance. And, and I was sitting there, so I thought, I'm going I'm to give this the old effort. And he was talking about the great, man, he impl- implemented it very beautifully uh, last Sunday morning. And I thought, aha, check that one off for sure. Every Christian is commanded to love God and love our neighbor. How could we better love God than to share these amazing truths about his justice being met and his love being extended to the gospel? And how we can better love others than to invite them to know God's forgiving and reconciling love? What is best can be hard and awkward. This is a matter of obedience as Christians. So we glorify God when we evangelize even if we don't see immediate results. I have talked time after time after time with our granddaughter about, and Lorraine and I, just like this, if you, know, you, would, if you would give your life to Jesus Christ, how many changes for the positive you would see? But she just can't make that step. And so keep praying for Daniela anyway. Uh, Jeremy Farmer, dealing with the same thing. I try to keep it local with our, with our local church here as our missionary, uh, these things. Um, Ron Weber, trying to, to uh, get the, the message in the, 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 the words of their, lang- their local language. Uh, Parker Naomi, dealing right now. Natalie, working right now with young people, possibly have never heard the gospel. Never even know, didn't even know what the Bible was. And uh, I've been in Bible camps where that, that was true. And there are kids that will come across their paths that know nothing. But, so we glorify God when we evangelize, even if we don't see those immediate results. So all Christians, not just the pastors, the elders, are to spread the good news. Part of our evangelistic activity has to do with the way we relate to each other as believers. Jesus said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's us right here. Love for one another. Ultimately, this love for God leads to a desire to see him glorified. Uh, The call to evangelism is a call to turn our lives outward, to stop focusing on ourselves and our needs, and to start focusing on God and the world he has made. This includes loving people who are made in God's image and yet are at enmity with him. A lot of people you rub shoulders with at work or whatever are those kind of people. We bring God's glory when we tell the great thing he has done in Christ for these creatures made in his image. Sometimes, however, if we're honest, the main reason we don't evangelize is because we can all say a little bit on this in, in, in each of our own minds and hearts. If we're honest, the main reason we don't evangelize is because we are not exactly sure how to do it, which leads right into the next point. How should we evangelize? We evangelize by preaching the word, by spreading the message, by telling the good news. 
It can be done publicly, through social media, TV, or through public meetings. And we can spread it privately, too, through personal conversations. Now, he gives, uh, Mark Dever, gives eight guidelines of how to do it. And I love the way he starts. Number one is pray. Salvation is the work of God, not our work. Utter dependence on him for your non-Christian friends and neighbors. And that reminds me, uh, Chris and Brandy, Bob and Carol, the Todds, Bob and Sharon, Arnaldi, Larry and Debbie Bolmeyer, Larry and Phyllis Sullivan. These are my immediate neighbors around my house. And that comes early in my prayer life every morning. It has to. And I feel and I, the Lord convicts me if I don't pray for them every day. And so, because I, I talk to basically all of them every day. And being retired, I'm home all day. Well, sort of. But anyway. Secondly, a guideline is to tell people with honesty that if they repent and believe, they will be saved, but it will be costly. We must be accurate in what we say. We can't keep back any important points of the message, for there are two, because for fear that they are too awkward or difficult to explain. Like when you are sick, a good doctor will tell you what's wrong with you, or he's, he's not a good doctor. Three, the third guideline is that we tell people with urgency. I underlined those words. People Tell people that we do it with urgency, that if they repent and believe, they will be saved, but they must decide now. John 14, 6 is a good verse to look up. You know, most of these are familiar with it, but I'm going to give you a few references here. Acts 4, 12. All of Romans 10, Hebrews 4, 7. For there is no other way than Christ. And if Christ is the only way, then what are you waiting for? It is the only way. The fourth guideline, tell people with joy. That's a big one. Joy that if they repent and believe the good news, they will be saved. If you don't have joy when you tell the good news factually to your friends or neighbors that you know are unsaved, then we need to work on getting that joy that, hey, God saved us. And they need that too. Hebrews 11 recounts stories of those who suffered hard things for the faith, and yet they endured. But more than that, Hebrews 12, 2, the next chapter, we read that Jesus himself endured the cross, in the next words, for the joy that was set before him. Constant, constant talk. Rejoice in the Lord always. I, I always refer back to this uh, in uh, Philippians. It's a prison epistle. He's, he's, the Apostle Paul is in a prison, and he's talking about rejoicing. And I think each one of us, if we were in a dirty... I, I, I grew up in California, so I'd say San Quentin. And I was in prison at San Quentin. I am to rejoice in the Lord. It's commanded. Scripture. So then the next guideline is use the Bible. It goes without saying. Acts 8, Philip shared the good news with the Ethiopian official. Number six, realize that the lives of individual Christians and of the church as a whole are central to evangelism. 
our lives individually and as a congregation should give credibility to the gospel we, we proclaim. We go refer back to a little bit ago where I talked about we need to love one another. Uh, that's a command from the Lord. Uh, if we demonstrate that, then that's going to give a lot more credibility to those we are witnessing to. When a group of people representing different life stages, just in our small group here, different ethnicities, ethnicities, different backgrounds and demographic differences come together to worship the same God, this action carries a weight and significance that none of us can muster on our own. I was just, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really glad to be home. I enjoyed the service at Capitol Hill last week. But during the service, even during the message, I was thinking back, oh, what are they doing at, at GBC right now? And it was like, okay, when I walked, when we drove in today with our hot rod and came into here, I thought, ah, oh, it's good to be home and enjoy this because I, I see a lot of this things. I'm, I hope I'm not just preaching to the choir, but I think I am to an extent. So anyway, none of us can muster that on our own. It's with God's love that we can love one another. Uh, some verses to look up. Matthew 5, 16, 1 Peter 2, 12, John 13, verses 34 and 35. Live a life of committed love to the other members of your local church as a fundamental part of your own sanctification and of your evangelistic mystery. Our individual lives alone are not sufficient witness. Our lives together as church communities are the confirming echo of our witness. The seventh guideline is build relationships with non-Christian. Now, I think our church does an outstanding job building relationships with one another, with Christians. But he's saying build it with non-Christians. All the guidelines above can apply to the situations in which you share the gospel. The person next to you in an elevator or on a bus or on a plane. But one category of evangelism includes those people whom you already know, friends or family who aren't Christians. It includes people whom you could get to know if you were given, if you were to give a little time and forethought to going to the places where you might meet people who don't know Christ, intending to build relationships with them. Uh, one of the books, and it may be the, this book that we're taking all this from, in the uh, somebody somebody other than the author writes a little what do they call it, a prologue or something like not a prologue but some little statement and he said his relationship with Mark Dever was he says this is a man he lives by what he preaches he says they always suggest he always suggesting let's go out to eat and but he always suggests the same I think he talked about a subway he says it's not really a great subway to begin with. But he says he has a feeling that when he goes in there, that there is somebody in that, in that place that he has developed a relationship with, and he is, he's going to stay after it with the, all the facts of the gospel and, teach, and, and telling them the good news. And so he goes along to, he said he goes along to witness him in action. All right, the, the eighth one, work together with other Christians to take the gospel to those who don't live around any Christians. Uh, most of us, if we work in secular jobs, we'll probably run into people 
that don't have a single Christian friend outside of you. And this is what he's emphasizing there. This is an extension of the previous point where we saw building relationship with non-Christians. But deliberately building relationships with non-Christians, but it takes our initiative to another level. We need to reckon with the fact that there are people who simply do not know any Christians. Since God's plan is that the whole world should know about this good news, and since he has committed the task of telling others into our hands, then we must send and we must go. The Great Commission, Matthew 28, uh, Romans 10, 14 to 15. Okay, then the last point that he had on evangelism was that evangelism is not marketing. Uh, I'm not going to say a whole lot on this um, because he devoted two to three pages completely on this. Uh, The word he used, uh, all of us, uh, most all of us have heard of the words, the sinner's prayer. Uh, He said that that term has come under some criticism by, and this is a direct quote, of course, younger pastors and ministers as being merely a human tradition and not a biblical command. Now, I'm not going to argue the points, the pros and the cons on that, because I grew up using the sinner's prayer. And, uh, but it's possibly a practice that generates false converts. I've been to crusades of different evangelists that, that I'm not sure that person got saved, but I think they got talked into it anyway. And so you can sometime get a chance to read the book, read the book, and he, see what he says on So I'm going to conclude with this, that Christians should tell everyone the good news. We should all evangelize. We should do so with honesty, urgency, and that big three-letter word, joy. I like to remember it from the Sunday school song, Jesus and others and you. What comes first? You're talking about Jesus. And it's talking to others. Then you, then you think about yourself. Okay, joy, living a life that backs up our message and praying that the people we share with will be truly converted. All glory to God as people are saved and healthy churches are built up. And that's all I have to say. Oh, I did have one other thing. My son-in-law gave me a couple books that you might just write down um, that was given to him. They have a new members class that uh, if you want to join the church, you're required to go to this new members class. And these books were given to him several years ago. But they were both written by uh, Mark Dever. the first one, the gospel and personal evangelism. The gospel and personal evangelism. And the other one is called discipling, how to help others follow Jesus. Taking them from conversion, steps forward. What a Christian. And uh, they, a lot of the thoughts that are expressed in these two books are expressed in the book that we were discussing these nine weeks. And I thought I'd just share those with you too. No, you can't have these. These are not free for you because they're mine. Oh, and so anyway. So. I have a copy of the personal evangelism book, a 
couple of those. So if you are looking to study up on one of these topics, uh, let me know. I've got some books that I can give you, and then I've got a whole library you could borrow from. So uh, let me know anytime you're interested in reading. Let me just put a little bit of an exclamation point on these two topics. First, conversion. Mark gave us several of the references there that remind us that change is needed. Um, Conversion, though, isn't a word we use a lot in our language of salvation. We usually, you know, we might talk about repentance and faith. We might talk about salvation. Uh, Conversion is kind of a bigger word that we stamp over a lot of other theological words. And maybe it would be helpful if if you answer this question. Uh, Who is responsible in conversion? Who is responsible in conversion? What do you think? What's that? Holy Spirit? What other answers do we have? The individual? So the battle's on. Chris says, God and the Holy Spirit. Dave's saying it's the individual. Like, who else wants to weigh in and be? Paul? Good, Roy? Okay. So all the answers are right. The question who is responsible in conversion would be God and people. So God gives a command, ultimately, repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. That was his first message that he preached. Um, But then as Paul brought out, so Chris was right, it's the work of God, and you could go to John 3 and see conversion unfold, uh, and Nicodemus' mind is kind of boggled at this expression being born again. Well, God was doing something, just like the wind blows and you don't see it, but you see what happens because of it. So it is the Spirit of God moves and you see what happens because of it. Um, So God is at work. However, he's commanded human beings to repent and believe. So they are responsible clearly to obey that command. And when they don't, they are condemned because they have not believed in the only begotten Son of God. So both are responsible. Paul threw out this idea, though, that there's an order theologically of salvation. Uh, the old Latin would be the order, so, ordo salutis, the order of salvation. And it's not just pure chronology like this, 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 and this. Because sometimes it's this, I'm doing this, but God's doing this. So it's, it's more of a logical order of how we move from being enemies with God to being sons of God. In that order, then, we can take responsibility that's given to man and God's responsibility, and we can find priority or a first or ultimate 
uh, responsibility or cause. Um, so you could say, well, how, did, how is it that you came to faith in Christ? And you could say, well, I repented of my sins and believed. And we would be wrong to say, well, that's not true, because God had to do something. No, we would say, oh, that's great. And frankly, a lot of people are truly converted, and they have repented of sin, and they've recognized the value of Christ, his righteousness, forgiveness of sins, eternal life. And what they don't understand is the ultimate cause of how it was that they repented and believed. As Paul said, when a body is made alive, it breathes. And so you could press into their testimony there of repenting and believing and what they may not have seen in Scripture yet is that if they've repented and believed, the Bible re describes repentance as a gift of God, and it describes faith as a gift of God. So God had to do something first. He was the ultimate cause of why they are a Christian. Um, and we might, we might even say in, in kind of stark theological terms, well, this is, this is why we would characterize our theology in this body as, uh, as reformed. We would agree with the reformers on this matter of how salvation happens. Um, that's really all that word means. It doesn't like, mean some crazy, what's out there, you're reformed. Well, it goes back to, well, what did the reformers say? And of course, why did they say it? Well, we think it's in the scriptures that God clearly acts first we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1, but by verse 4 or 5, he made us alive. So, a lot to think on in conversion, but just, just remember, it's an absolute necessity. We must be converted. But that process is obedience to God's command. I must repent and believe, but if I do, eventually I'm going to look back and say, wait a minute, God did something first. And really, whether you're a full-blooded, you know, Spurgeon Calvinist or not, what you should be pressing into in the scriptures is, did God preemptively strike at my rebellious heart? And is he the cause of why I repented and believed? Um, that's the big picture of the sovereignty of God and salvation. Chris? <laughs> yes, Chris, okay, if, if you need that affirmation, we will, we will give it to you. Yeah, that's right. Everyone gets a trophy. <laughs> All right. And then lastly, evangelism. Um, it's a great word. We call this word a transliteration. Um, you don't translate from the Greek word. You literally just write the letters in, in English, and most of the Greek letters kind of look like English. So, uh, evangel um, in the Greek would be more euangelos uh, or angelion. Uh, so, it's you, the EU, as in eulogy. So, eulogy is a good word. You is good. Um, so, we have something that's good. You. And then angelos, or angel, which means messenger or message. So to evangelize, 
in our minds, we think, well, which, which plan, which system, which order of verses, which and that, that is legitimate. It all flows out of evangelism, but the word itself, rather than thinking today, do I have the gift of an evangelist? Um, well, I'm not going to preach like a traveling evangelist. No, let's, let's get rid of those specific applications of the word and bring it back to the original. And it simply means a good message or more often we say the good news, gospel. Uh, so the word gospel is this word evangel or good news. So this week, as you think evangelism, don't think as much about techniques or settings or, you know, I have to knock on someone's door or I have to get into a full presentation of the life of Christ and what he's done for sinners. That's all valid, but just know God might only grant you this week an opportunity for, uh, for a two-minute conversation with a little bit of influence in somebody's life. It might be that you're focused at your cubicle and it's just going to be you, you're working hard and you, you don't have an opportunity to speak of God loving the world and being merciful in Christ to save sinners. But your work ethic is demonstrating the good works of Matthew 5 that men might, may see and glorify your Father in heaven. Uh, the author was careful to say it's not just a personal testimony, but it can include that. You know, the blind man that Jesus healed says, listen, I don't know what you guys are fighting about, you Pharisees. I just know I was blind, but now I see. Like, that, that's all I can tell you. Like, I don't know what the controversy is about. Uh, so a personal testimony is a part of it. But you, finding faith or religion, is how somebody might look at it, is not the gospel. That's why he says your testimony isn't necessarily evangelism at its purest. It could be a part of those efforts. Um, and, and social change isn't the evangelism, but it, it can be a part. Your good works can be a part of the picture of the gospel. So just realize this week, sharing good news by life or in word uh, is what you're called to do. Um, and be encouraged. And maybe even next week we could, we could follow up with this if, if there's time. I don't know who's speaking next week. Um, but Mark touched on it just for a moment there that seeing somebody come to faith in Christ and trust him in, in that very conversation you're having is, is not the only definition of success in evangelism. Um, the call on every Christian is to be a witness, to testify to the good news, namely the person of Jesus Christ. When you do that, whether it's rejected, whether you're Stephen and stoned for it, or you know, Spurgeon and seeing thousands come to faith in Christ, it doesn't matter. The results are God's responsibility. You are called to be a witness. And some of you have been a faithful witness in your workplace to unsafe family members, and you haven't seen them come to Christ, and the devil can whisper in your ear, see, what's the use? You're no good at this. You're a failure. They're never going to change. And the answer is you just keep taking the oath there of being a faithful witness in the box, you're called to testify to what God has done, and so you just keep sharing. It's good news. Uh, this is the good news. Um, so share the good news in some way this week, uh, and be ready to sh share that with the body. 
how God gave you the opportunity in some way to say some small thing to someone. Um, Because that is success. You were a witness. You made Christ known, and now the Holy Spirit, as Chris reminded us, uh, can do the work on somebody's heart and life. You're you're not the great savior of sinners. Um, Be careful if you grew up in a background that used the word soul winner a lot because winning the soul became the end and not just a result that was in God's hands. You were supposed to go out and win souls. Well, you can't convert people. You can't make them believe. You can't do that with your own children, you've probably learned. And so God has to do that. But even with our children, we're called to to be the witness, to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. As a parent, you would save them if you could save them, but you can't. And as we grow in our love for others, we would long to have some kind of persuasive power to see people converted, but we can't. We, We live by faith that God says, you be faithful as a witness and God will take care of the rest. Um, But that being faithful as a witness, I think every one of us in this room would know can be a challenge. Uh, So we need to hear this, uh, and especially as our world looks like it's just collapsing around us morally, um, all the more, uh, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And so, Lord, take these thoughts uh, ultimately from your word, uh, from an experience, experienced, seasoned pastor back east there, uh, from our brother here in our midst, Mark, and uh, all these thoughts, and just remind us uh, that we have tasted the goodness of God and salvation from sin, uh, and it is good news to us. Uh, So make us ready to share it, to share uh, with eager defense of the hope that is in us. Give us opportunities this week and open our eyes to those opportunities. Uh, Walks in the neighborhood, uh, casual conversations in the workplace, spontaneous talk with strangers in uh, the stores we shop in, uh, whatever it may be, uh, remind us that uh, the people around us are in desperate need of the good news that we have come to know and love. Thank you for your mercy to us in Christ. Uh, We praise you through him and for him, even as we pray in his name. Amen.